Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Jill Nagel is a published author, coach, facilitator, and founder of Evolutionary Workplace. She aims to help reduce harm to black and brown people, as well as support white people in liberating themselves from the effects of white supremacy's toxic mythology. She uses somatic tools to help white anti-racist leaders dismantle white supremacy and live their most aligned lives from the inside out. She's working on her book called Skin in the Game how white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy, and hopes to find a publisher very soon. You can find out more about Jill Nagel at evolutionaryworkplace.com. Welcome to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. Jill, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. I'm um, so glad to be here. And the first thing I want to say is I'm sorry about getting the dates screwed up, and thank no you worries. for your grace and flexibility. No I really appreciate it. That means a lot. Um, no worries. And the other thing is that, you know, there's obviously a lot going on in the world. So I just want to check in and see how you're doing. Oh, thank you. Heartbroken. My heartbreak comes out at various crying jags during the day. And I'm also just saddened and, and kind of stunned at how polarized people in my community are, meaning the Jewish community and beyond to intense polarization. And, you know, in and among that polarization, I see this. This will all tie into what I'm sure you want to get into. Yeah. I see some voices that are holding nuance and paradox and complexity, and realizing you cannot solve or close down this issue with a single meme or statement or even paragraph or essay. That it's deeply rooted, many facets, and, and of course, I'm talking about the violence happening mm -hmm. in. Israel, Palestine, Gaza. Yeah. I called a gathering of some Jewish leaders that I knew who were openly taking the side of peace <laughs> and paradox and complexity and nuance and not rushing to shore up a side. So that's that's been very good and it really aligns with all the other things that I work on and stand for. So thank you for asking. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very interested in hearing many different voices on the situation. And I appreciate that yours comes from one of compassion and empathy, because that's what I'm trying to lead with. Yeah. And not from a, I realize how it sort of sounds a little bit like that knee jerk reactionary white supremacist mindset of what all lives matter is a way of kind of shutting down when people are foregrounding oppression. And a very short way of saying that that's not what I'm talking about is that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because I know people are afraid to have conversations about it, don't want to offend anyone. And yet, you know, authenticity is what works best in relationships if your relationships have a strong base. Mm -hmm. And yet it's hard to get to because, like you said, it is complex and there's many different views and facets 
So I, I understand that. And I'm, I'm still trying to learn as much as I can to speak. It's from hard. Even if you learn all the facts, it's still like, wait, now what? <laughs> like, how, right. well, so therefore, very hard to. Right, right. I agree with you completely. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your background. Now, because you were in corporate America. So I still am. You still are technically. Well, because of the work you do is based in corporate America or no, I have a, I have a, a corporate contract right now with, with Bank of America as a content strategist. Okay. It feels like kind of a whole other world, but I'm also bringing my values into that work. So for example, when we are writing about accessibility, I thought, oh, we're going to write like one article about alt text. But I went, wait a minute. I just found myself writing and writing. Now we have five articles, one about diversity, equity, and inclusion principles. Another one about diversity, equity, inclusion, excuse me, and accessibility practices. Even like the names that we use. Sometimes when people use example names, they're all Anglo. <clears throat> excuse me. And writing for low literacy readers. Something like 60% of people in the United States of America are at a reading level that we want to make sure we include in the writing. So, so let me just ask you, I just, want, I just want to differentiate from what you did before, before you went into your solo gig to what you did previously. Is it the same same contract work or is it different? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing corporate contract work on and off when I don't okay. have the bandwidth to write proposals and so on, you know, for consulting, do marketing, you know, for coaching clients, I will pick up a corporate contract. And so I've been doing that on and off for a number of years. What, what is your primary focus? What, what is your goal in doing the work that you're doing? You mean the, the passion work, I'm assuming? Not yet. The oh, contract okay. work. Oh, the contract work is to finance everything else. Okay. Okay. I appreciate that. Well, you know... I, I'm sure you know by now, black bodies are highly suspect of white bodies who claim that they are anti-racist. Yes. And then, you know, the whole Robin D'Angelo situation, which raised fragility as a very vulnerable image for, for white bodies, as opposed to the aggressive nature of fragility, you know, and then to turn on and profit off it. It's been a very controversial topic. And historically, it's laden in the fact that Black people know this, black bodies know this, brown bodies know and teach this. And then a white body comes along and makes money off of a, a concept that's derived from the historical work that's been done. Can you speak on that from your perspective? Sure. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Should white people make money from dismantling white supremacy? And I, my first thought is, well, right now, there's a sense in which, and I might get fired for this, <laughs> there's a sense in which I'm making money from upholding white supremacy. Interesting. And I find that kind of heartbreaking. I don't want to be doing that. And yet, if I want to put food on the table, if I want to put my kid through college, I need to make a certain amount of money. So I'm going to work for the proverbial man. Mm. What if we think about it, you know, to be, I think, a little bit gentler about that is that we all sell out on some degree, mm -hmm. you know, to some degree we all sell out and it's a matter of how much you're willing to do that and what you're willing to lose in order to not do it to the extent that you will regret it. Yeah. Lily Zhang has a book called The Ethical Sellout. Lily Zhang plus another co-author's name I can't remember right now, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. It looks at some of those trade-offs. So back to your question, I wasn't finished with that because I think there's a lot to, uh, 
plum there. I wrote a piece at some point called Should Healers Get Paid? And I wrote it because I got into a conversation with a healer who insisted that he would never <clears throat> take any money for anything that he did. And meanwhile, he worked some low-paying retail job for hours and hours and hours a week where I thought, you know, if he did charge money, he could be devoting more of himself. And I sort of thunk this through, if you will. I think it's, I think the dismantling white supremacy mythology, when I say mythology, I don't mean that the harm isn't real. I mean that it's not true. White people are not superior, but it's, it's a mythology that's twisted in, as you know, to everything in this culture. And I think that dismantling white supremacy mythology, that work ought to be done by white people. And it ought to be done by white people seeking out other white people, particularly those who are resistant. Because we have a certain kind of privilege. And to a person I normally see, my liberal and progressive white friends abdicating that privilege, saying, oh, what a horrible person. I don't want to engage with them because their views are just bad and wrong. I'm like, well, guess who, you know, guess guess who's going to suffer if those that person's views don't ever change? And I'm fond of quoting Asia Davis from the Human Potential Project, a woman of African descent who has said, you know, in parentheses, dear white person, one less racist in your life is not one less racist in my life. And to me, what that points out is that I have the privilege of dissociating myself from the other white people and saying, I am not like that other white person and I'm not even going to talk to that other white person. Well, when I do that, when I have the opportunity to talk to the other white person who I think is racist and I don't take that opportunity, I'm abdicating an opportunity to use my white privilege to engender transformation. And so back to the question of should white people get paid for doing work? I think if white people are truly dismantling white supremacy mythology and they can make a living at it, then yes, they should get paid by other white people. Oh, okay. That's a caveat. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. That's where I, I landed yeah, with all of that. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you went, you know, full circle. I appreciate that. It is, you know, it's like when I get, when I get asked, you know, should white bodies do therapy with cultured bodies? And it's a, it's a tricky, complex question. And I look at this similarly, which is, you know, if you make an impact, you make an impact, but there is a lot, there are a lot of nuances that you need to be careful of. And I think you spoke to them well. So thank you. And I also want to say, I recognize your language as echoed in Reswa Menicum's work, white bodies, bodies of culture. And I wanted to say that I had some feelings about being put in a group of not bodies of culture because Jewishness is a culture and it's a culture that's been targeted. And that is also true as at the same time that it's true as I'm living in a white body and I have white skin privilege. That's so, the challenge. Right. Right. That's an ongoing conversation. I had a, uh, a really difficult conversation with a teenager the other day about that. It's a very challenging conversation and we get into other layers that we could do a whole nother conversation about. But that's why I specifically say brown and black bodies, because I think that that is, you know, the community when I'm talking about my culture, that's the community I align with. You can't um, argue with that. I am not a brown body. My first girlfriend called <laughs> me the original white girls. <laughs> Well, I, I know you are working on a book. And so my question is, you've already led into it a little bit, but I'm going to go a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. My question is, what is your skin in the game? 
Mm. And how would white, white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy? <laughs> my personal, oh my gosh, that's so deep, JD. So I've always been kind of a truth teller to a fault, perhaps. When something didn't smell right to me, like in my family, I would speak up about it. And I was constantly getting silenced and framed as, you know, the problem for this. But, but I've since learned what a gift this is to be able to sort of see, well, let me back up and say a lot of what I see in terms of white supremacy mythology comes from my old and dear friend and mentor, Dr. Cleo Monago, who I met about 30 years ago. And I remember the first conversation I had with him, he was, he, we talked for like three hours on the phone one night and I, my, my mind was just blown. I mean, I already considered myself to be anti-racist, but I didn't know so much of, so much of what he had to share. And when I say mentor, I mean that I, I don't mean that he's, you know, taken me under his wing, but I keep bugging him and seeking him out and following him and listening to him. So I would say, he has influenced me tremendously. But I know truth when I hear it, you know? And it's it's ruined me in a good way. Like I can't, you know, sit, sit down and watch The Orville, which is a Star Trek spinoff with my partner without ranting about this white supremacist thing and that one. And because it's so woven in and like, he can't just enjoy the show because I'm here ranting <laughs> and I can't just enjoy it either unless I just hold my nose, you know. And I'm thinking about a particular episode where there, you know, there, there are particular quote unquote alien species that they hire black actors to play. And then there's often parallels with how that quote unquote alien species is framed, you know, some of their attributes that, you know, are par they they're they're res they're resonant with how with how black people get framed by, by white supremacy mythology attitudes in this culture. So this one culture, the Mocklin had a renegade female tribe. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah, I saw it. Okay. Yeah. So this, this, and it, it's, it's very well done. It's very, very funny and captivating. Mm -hmm. I think you probably see where I'm going with this. And I forget what the woman's yes. name was. She's the elder, the sort of, you know, holder of the history and the leader, the people who people look to. And so they visit her and she shows them her altar and plastered all over her altar is none other than Dolly Parton, a very white icon in U.S. culture. And of course, this is hilarious, right? Like, how did this ever happen? And the, the backstory, and then, you know, the, the sort of come to Jesus or come to Buddha moment, if you will, in the show is where she has to do a moral reckoning. And so she goes into the holodeck and she meets with Dolly Parton. And it's heartwarming and it's delightful. And if you step back 10,000 feet, it's a white woman who's holding the truth. Exactly. You know, it's just, it makes me mad that I found it so entertaining. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I, I really do understand that. It's very well done. And yet it repeats so much of the trauma that we experience in the world. Yeah. It's and I'm exciting. sorry about that. Thank I know I didn't do it, but I, you know, I, 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 I walk around a lot feeling guilty that I haven't saved the world yet, and for all the shitty things that white supremacy mythology is enacting, and that I can't just pull a string and stop it. 
I'm really, I'm really sorry. You know, look, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not thanking white bodies for doing what they should be doing. I've, I've grown past that, but I do appreciate hearing it. I do, you know, receive it, if you will, because it is painful and it is exhausting. And at least once a day, I say at work, man, white people are exhausting. <laughs> because that is my reality. That is my reality. And I don't apologize for my reality. You know, I, I always go back to my child and say, you know, black people were trained how to be in white spaces. We were raised how to be in white spaces. But white people weren't trained in how to be around different, you know, bodies of culture and different races. They just they just weren't. And so many, that's why I don't call them microaggressions anymore, because they're not. They rip, they rip open the same wound time and time again. And, you know, one day, I, last, I think it was about a week ago, I had to call out Black. I was like, I, I can't, I just got to take a day. Instead of calling out sick, I just called out Black. I was like, I just, I just need a break. I need a break from it. And took that day, and then, you know, you face it again, because we don't have a choice. And people think, you know, oh, you know, what I, somebody wrote on my page today, wah, 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 stop crying and complaining. You know, it's, it has nothing to do with being a victim. It has to do with being truthful about how I move through the world and how I experience the world. And I won't apologize for that. It took me a long time to get here. I won't apologize for it. So I say all that to say I, re I recognized and, uh, and understand where they were going with the show. And it was still heartbreaking that that's, that's where they landed, you know? Yeah. And it's both of those things. So, so insidious. It just catches you, mm -hmm. you know, like you're in the middle of laughing. You're like, wait a minute. What did I just get roped into? Right. Right. And I, I, I like that you can't look at things the same anymore. What I know about far too many white bodies is that the compartmentalization is attached to the, into the individualism of the white culture. And so it can compartmentalize it and not necessarily feel this today and recognize it tomorrow. And that is yet another, you know, bit of access and privilege that can be experienced on behalf of the white culture. So I appreciate when you say you can't just sit and watch things anymore. They impact you differently. That's, that's, that's a good thing in my book. Yeah. And so back to your question of what is my skin in the game and how does dismantling white supremacy benefit white people? For me personally, it's uncovering yet more dreck is the Yiddish word for shit that was piled on as part of growing up in this culture. I don't want to be covered in that. I want to live as much as I can a truthful life. I mean, maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now, you know, my grandkid or somebody younger, much younger than me is going to be saying, you profess to all X, Y, and Z, and yet you ordered from Amazon and you bought plastic and you did all these things. And I'm going to go, yeah, that was pretty horrible. I was inculcated. I was indoctrinated and I didn't manage to pull that off. So I'm on the Slayer right now, you know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I talk about in the book is that I avoid talking so much. I think a lot of the dialogue and discourse and theory and so on around racism has been about individuals. And I'm talking about, and I, again, I got this from Cleo. I'm talking about a white supremacy mythology. I'm talking about a system that, acts independently of the individuals and creates mindsets, different levels of mindset that we can all look around and witness. There's the, ah, la, 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 I don't see color. I'm not racist. Don't talk to me about that. It's not my fault. You know, I can't help what my ancestor did. So we're all 
not at the mercy of it. We're all impacted by it. We're all swimming in the same, you know, cesspool, if you will, of, of white supremacy mythology. And what white people's skin in the game in dismantling this is that we get to reclaim our full humanity. Mm. Wait, wait. You need to say that again. Okay. So I think that what white supremacy mythology does to white people is it strips them of their full humanity, strips us of our full humanity. You can't vote for something that trashes the lives of black and brown people in one moment and then go to church and pray to God to make you more like the white Jesus that you're praying to by being kind and just and all of that without having some internal schism, some internal contradiction that messes with you. I think that is the white rage. <laughs> that is the white rage. That internal conflict, that 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 feeling of something you want to get rid of, but you don't know how. So it comes out in these rageful ways. Yeah. And it's it's confusion. It's it's self-hatred. There's a Danish guy named Jacob Holt who's in the 70s now. And I met him Oh my God. In the I met him in the 80s. So he must have been, I, I can't do math. He must have been in his 40s or something, right? 30s. You think you can't do math. <laughs> my mind goes blank when a math problem comes up. So let's just say he was many decades younger at the time. And he was producing the show at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was in school, called American Pictures. And it was a documentation of his journey through the quote unquote American underclass. And he, put a human face on a lot of people who were living in poverty, who were really struggling, who were for most intents and purposes invisible, that certainly students at this, you know, Ivy League college never would have encountered. And he looks at the whole system that, that created and perpetuated. So anyway, so Jacob Holt wrote an article, several articles about, and he's somebody who's like so like open and non-judgmental and curious. And he gets to go places because of this, because of this sort of heartful way that he has. So he went into the bowels of the leadership of some Southern clan members. And what he found was that these so-called grand whoever, poobahs, or, were living in squalor to a person. And to a person, they, were, they had all been severely abused, most of them sexually abused. And he sat with them and listened to their trauma. And one of the things that I'm fond of saying over and over is that polemical positions, like being a member of a white supremacist group, they're all strategies in it to cope with something. And in the case of Jacob Holt and the people he encountered, they're coping with, with, with trauma, with feel like complete shit, what I call the broken promise of whiteness. And Donald Trump is, I think, like a shining exemplar of that. That he could be, he could be like the poster child, you know, for the promise of whiteness. And you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can be dumb as a stump, but you're white. And you can even be president, and you can be a billionaire, you know. And that's what people are voting for. They're voting for, like, I don't want to feel like such shit anymore. And another example was Daryl Davis. You can find his videos on YouTube. Do you know about him? He's the jazz musician who, he's a black man who went and hung out with the Klan. With oh, yeah. judgment. And eventually, like over 200 people turned in their robes. Wow. Because the he, he broke the contradiction. I am in no way advocating 
granny black people to do what he did. That's, that's way too much labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his choice. I'm saying that the the contradiction was broken of, you know, on you know, going to church in one day and then preaching hate on the next, and they couldn't do it in the face of this kind man, you know? And so I you know see what? go ahead. I'm sorry, JD. No, no, you go, you go. I see the work of white people as educating ourselves about how white supremacy mythology operates on white minds and holding space to help break down some of those polemics that are hold, held in place by trauma to sort of gently you know, unravel it. I, I think I just want to get in there for a second to say, you know, I, I, I've always taught that, you know, people unlearn in relationships. Yeah. The challenge is, is the, the labor on the backs of black people to be in relationship and help you unlearn can be relentless and unrewarding when you see that we all have to sell out at a job. We all have to do something that's not true to who we are, but you have to do it. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie. It's a challenge. What and is your job? Can you remind me? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a counselor at a school. Hmm. And so, and it's not just there, it's other jobs I've had as well, where it's just like when you're in white spaces, it's a different world. And we as black bodies know what it means to work in white spaces. We know what we can and can't say. It just so happens I'm at the age where I don't care quite as much, but I do want to respect, you know, the, the space. I do want to respect it, but also I want to be truthful in it. And that's a, that's a tough balance. It really is. So for him to do the additional labor of going inside the clan to do that, oof. I can't even imagine just every day being who I am is enough. Yeah. So that, but that's what I want to call on white people to do. And I will yeah. say I will be answerable to you, JD. I will be answerable to the other black people I know who want to protect who they are. But I say, I say, I offer myself, I say, use me as your tool. Tell me what you want me to let them know. I'm not saying do more labor and let me know, but I'm saying. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I get it. You said poor and working class white bodies do not have a collective identity within which to organize. Can you say a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. For most, we don't have a class consciousness in this country. I, I can't remember who it was that said the problem with, with the working class and poor people in the United States is that they don't see themselves as an interest group. They see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Wow. So, so the carrot in front of the nose has... White people thinking, well, you know, I may be poor, you know, I may have been abused, but at least I'm white. And so that's shoring up, you know, that justification. It's a, that's a place on the continuum of white supremacy, what I call the white supremacy mythology mindset continuum. And if you look around, you can see that some people are upholding white supremacy and they're doing it with an intensity and a fervor that's often accompanied by pretty dismal life circumstances. Well, there, there's also, you know, and just keeping with the theme of the sellout factor, I mean, there are, you know, bodies from the global majority who uphold white supremacy as well. You know, there's a fear, you know, of, of not having that idealized separation from racism if you've sold out to a certain degree. And so you choose to uphold a system that you believe at some point will benefit you. You buy into the illusion. And, you know, and it's a, it's, it's, it's gotta be a separation from self to that degree Yeah. to, you know, just not remember. Yeah. I mean, I know that are. Cleo gets exhausted because he works 
pretty much entirely with Black people. And his body of work, CTCA, Critical Thinking and Cultural Affirmation, was recognized by the CDC in 2015. He developed in the con- in the context of AIDS recovery and, okay. and wellness, but it really applies across the board. And what he does is he works with Black people to help them understand how some of these mythologies that got installed in their own brains came about and to develop mm-hmm. a critical analysis of white supremacy mythology. And he does it on the fly too. Like for example, he wrote about, and a lot of this I get from his his Facebook feed, like the, this thing I'm about to tell you. He was on a plane and there were two young black men behind him saying, yeah, I want to live in a mansion, you know, have this kind of car and a white wife. Yeah, and they were like high-fiving. So being Cleo, he intervened and he, you know, established some rapport with them. And he says something like, why would you want to marry someone who didn't look like your mom or your sister? And then he leaves the question there in the air. And then they have to think about it, you know? And I've learned a lot from watching how he just pulls on that one little string. Like, why, why would you want that, you know? And it's a very, like, seemingly innocuous way of doing the work, but it's really powerful. Yeah, and, and you know, at the core of it, it's not, it's not you know, love, love who you want. That's not what it's about. It's about denouncing your own and, 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 and uplifting another culture and race to that degree. I mean, that's based in self-hatred, and that's what he's putting on the table. What does it say about you, that you despise your own, the people you came from, that much to to elevate one over the other. That's, yeah. that's the piece that's really nuanced and very well done. You know, you talk about uh, dysfunctional white psyche and your work, your ev- evolutionary workplace, mm-hmm. right? Talk about what you do to deconstruct that and work within that reality of this, this psyche. A lot of it is similar to what I did when I was a somatic counselor and it comes to, usually comes down to one of two things, one being strategy and the other being conversations because a lot of times the work comes down to having a conversation with someone and then the rest of the time it's making a choice around strategy. And that's not exhaustive, but it covers a lot. So for example, with the strategy, I mean, with the conversation, recently I was talking with someone who typed a reaction in a chat message, typed something... To, that somebody had a reaction. He was processing his own feelings of, you know, shame. Did I say the wrong thing? How should I repair this? Should I, you know, what should I do? And the way that white supremacy mythology sits in, let's say, let's say the typical liberal white brain is that we want to think of ourselves as good people. And since we're white, we want to think of ourselves as good white people. But that's hard when every single day when we walk out the door, we are on the receiving end of our unearned privilege. So that messes with us. We can't easily rectify that in the same way that if I were standing on your foot, I could get off of your foot and say, I'm so sorry, can I bring you ice now that I've worsened your bruise or whatever. So we don't have an easy way to rectify this situation. And so we're kind of caught and it takes energy from us. So when a simple interaction like that 
comes along and flicks on this morass of crap that we carry of entanglement, it can kind of mess with our system. So the first thing that I try to do, to use Rasmur Menachem's words, is help the person find their own settled body and find a response to a situation which is kind of drawing from strategy that is not simply a white supremacy mythology mindset-induced reaction, but is a conscious choice to take a different path and to create something more transformative. You know, you're talking about the idea of slowing down for one. Yeah. So much of what is insidious about privilege and white supremacy systems is that they move at a pace that's so quick and so consistent with having access that there isn't often that, that pause to consider other people, other cultures. And as a result of that, it just continues to benefit yourself. And I like that idea of seeing what's happening in your body, centering yourself and, and making it about more of an expansive experience. Like, you know, brown and black cultures, we're very much collective. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that's just, you know, in the ancestral lineage of being about the collective. Mm-hmm. And I would invite white bodies to consider a culture of, of collectivism that is beneficial because you care about others and not just yourself, not just ben- what benefits you. I yearn for that. I was just talking, we had a gathering with some Jewish woman friends over the weekend. And I said, how many of you would really be in on living in community? What would it take, you know? I really yearn for that. I was re-watching Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. And there's a small Italian village he was in where they're dirt poor and they look out for each other, JD. They look out for each other in a way that I can't imagine happening in white America. Maybe it is and I don't see it. Yeah, searching for it. I like that. Before we wrap up, I just want you to be able to tell everybody where, where, where your book will be some point. Is it getting there? And where they can find you in general. You can find me at evolutionaryworkplace.com. And if you get on my mailing list, I'll make sure and tell you about when my book is coming out. There are a couple of preview chapters on my Medium channel. And I'll be sending those around in an upcoming newsletter. And so, oh wait, first LinkedIn or any other social? Oh yeah, I'm also on LinkedIn. I have two profiles there. One of them says dismantling white supremacy from the inside out. That's the one you want to connect with. The other one is my corporate content strategy. You'll know which was which. It's the same. Any other socials? You can find me on Facebook, but I don't usually accept friend requests from people I don't know. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. That's perfect. All right. You know, I always think about the intent um, versus the impact. Mm. And I'm just wondering, what, what is the intent of your book and what is the impact for the greater good in changing the narrative? Mm. Well, I hope they're one and the same. My intent is to shift the discussion from whether or not an individual white person is racist and how racist are they and that kind of provokes defensiveness and shame to let's stand together and look at this phenomenon called white supremacy mythology that we are all subject to. And let's think together and work together to unpack that from our beings 
so that we can feel more sane and we can be more effective in dismantling it and preventing harm to black and brown bodies. Like that. Jill, thank you for coming on today and sharing what you have learned and what you want to teach others. Please be sure to like, like subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. ...in just existing. This whole constant battle of, I don't have privilege because I'm poor, it, gets, it derails the conversation to what doesn't benefit all of us. And I appreciate that you're trying to keep the focus where it is and, and doing some some important work with people who also deserve not to feel the pain of white supremacy. It hurts us all. That's the thing, right? Please keep doing your part in changing the narrative. And once again, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, JD.